0: Hello everyone and thanks for listening. Um, So welcome to our eighth um, SCVO policy podcast based on our book, Charities, Scotland and Hollywood, 20 Years to Living Change. I'm Jenny Bloomfield, Senior Policy Lead at SCVO and today I'm delighted to have with me Sheila Duffy, who's the Chief Executive of Ash Scotland. Hi Sheila. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Oh, not at all, thanks for coming on. So we'll just kick off. Smoke-free public places, what a great achievement that was a massive change in Scotland. I'm assuming the journey to get there was quite a long one. Do you remember how many years, roughly, that that took?
1: From our perspective, I think it took about six years for the tide to turn because when we started off, no one wanted to know and it wasn't a popular idea. Um, And we had to do a lot of work to get to the point where it was high on the public agenda. Mm,
0: Absolutely. Was back at the beginning... So do you think, were smoke-free public places always the aim, or were you aiming for something smaller as a sort of stepping stone to get you there, do you remember what the planning was around that?
1: Well, for us it came out of a mounting body of research that showed that tobacco smoke is a toxic substance to breathe, Mm -hmm. and we wanted to see people protected, particularly when they were at work or in shared spaces. And initially we started off trying to find out if it was possible to go through workplace restrictions and legislation Mm -hmm. and then nothing much happened. And then there was an interest in Scotland uh, from a comfort perspective in places where you could eat and drink and people didn't want to be sitting, breathing smoke while they were eating their meal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But for us it was always a
0: health issue. So many of the campaigns in our book... They're the product of a coalition of organisations. Did you go down the coalition route as well in your campaign?
1: Absolutely we did and we could not have achieved what was achieved without working together with other partners. So we had the Scotland CAN, Cleaner Air Now Coalition Mm -hmm. and that included um, unions, it included uh, health bodies and charities Um, people that were concerned about this, that had read the Surgeon General's report and the report here in uh, Britain, and felt that action was needed. Mm -hmm. And we worked really closely with partners um, to look at the evidence, to agree the messages on the basis of that evidence, and just to keep pushing it as an issue that wasn't going to go away and needed to be looked at.
0: And how did you find that on a practical level in terms of sort of agreeing messages for example that can be quite difficult I know between different organisations maybe have slightly different takes or did you find that you were all sort of quite naturally all as one? We
1: play to people's strengths So we wanted to see legislation, I think that came through pretty quickly and pretty clearly. Mm -hmm. But we went to the heart charities to find out the best evidence on the impacts of secondhand smoke on heart health. Mm -hmm. And we went to the lung charities to find out what it did to your lungs. We went to the cancer charities to find the best cancer statistics. And we met round table, sometimes quite frequently, maybe every couple of weeks just to see where we were, what was coming through in the public and press messaging, what we needed to address and what we needed to agree.
0: Yeah. So do you think that was really helpful, having that constant communication throughout the campaign with each other in order to try and help with your working together?
1: I think it was essential because Ash Scotland works on tobacco and tobacco-related issues, yeah. but for something of that magnitude of change... You need a much wider coalition of um, civil actors, people that are willing to kind of speak up and bring their perspective on it.
0: Brilliant. Um, How much would you say that civil society and the support of the general public helped with your campaign?
1: It was a massive tide that turned the political opinion, I believe, and um, particularly at quite a late stage when the Scottish... Government ran a consultation mm-hmm. um, and we publicised it. We encouraged people to put it out through their networks, we encouraged people to respond, and they had the largest response that they'd ever had to a consultation. Um, and that gave us a chance to talk to people about what the basis of the legislation was that it was really not about smokers and non smokers, but it was about secondhand smoke as a toxic substance that people shouldn't be forced to breathe.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did you find, because even just in my memory, there wasn't a lot of public support for that kind of legislation back before. It sort of it sort of grew and there was a wave of support, but that wasn't always the case. So how do you recall how you managed to get to that stage where the public were behind it?
1: When we started talking about it as Ash Scotland journalists, Um, there was a very negative reaction. Mm. It was a case of well, people want to go out and relax and have a pint and a cigarette and you can't change that. Pubs Mm. are not going to change. And then a bit of a wave of um, smokers' rights type arguments which were pretty much originating with the tobacco industry and the groups that it was funding and incentivising to put across those messages. Um, But I think what's interesting to me is, is the silent majority that got involved because there was a small vocal number of um, smokers' rights organisations, or voices, who talked about the right to smoke and to enjoy smoking. But there was a much larger group of people who were affected by tobacco smoke mm-hmm. and when asked about it, voiced their opinions. And I think one of the things that really helped convince the government to act was that public opinion was very strongly in favour of taking action.
0: So did you feel that that public opinion was always there and it was just a case of encouraging people to speak up?
1: I suspect so. Okay. I suspect so, but there was quite a lot of work to do in in the media and in public debates to move the argument away from I don't like the smell, I don't like going out in the evening and coming back smelling of cigarettes, to mm. actually this is something that if you say, work in in a pub and you have to be there for a 10-hour shift and you're breathing it in, is likely to affect your health in the long term.
0: So is that a deliberate strategy of the Coalition to say, no, we're going to focus on the health side rather than the comfort side? Because that's the the more extreme end and that's the the side that we can win on better.
1: I'm not sure it was a strategy, it was where we started from because we were interested in improving health. And this was one thing that was coming through really strongly from research. Mm. And other countries were starting to look at it and starting to realise that legislation was needed. Mm. Um, So Ash Scotland, for example, was set up by the Royal Colleges and and set up by the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh initially Mm. because the messages about the harmfulness of smoking weren't getting across to the public because the tobacco companies, PR companies were casting doubt on them yeah. and um suggesting that really it wasn't that risky and mm-hmm. they did exactly the same with secondhand smoke
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. amazing um so just to look at practicalities because um part of the reason we're doing these podcasts is just to try and support our sector to learn about successful campaigns like your own and, and how how those happen how those happen on a sort of day-to-day basis so I'm curious, obviously it was a very long running campaign, so I think you said six years. Did you build up a fixed plan or have a clear idea of how you wanted to um, achieve what you did? Or were you quite free flowing or was it a bit of both? Did you have certain milestones? What was the sort of strategy to begin with?
1: Um, It was quite free flowing in many ways, although we had sort of mini campaigns at different stages. Mm -hmm. Um, and at one point, we were asking for legislation, and a voluntary approach was being backed by the Scottish Executive. Right. And we didn't think it would work, and we showed them the evidence internationally, which convinced us it wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. But they were determined to go along with it and to keep the licensed trade happy because they'd had a lot of representations and, and fears from the licensed trade. Mm-hmm. So we said we would. Um, agree to sit on our hands and not criticise that for two years if they put in a baseline measure and then looked at it again after a couple of years Mm -hmm. to see what had changed. Mm -hmm. And if it had provided effective protection for people, Mm -hmm. then it had worked. And if it hadn't, we wanted them to look at legislation. Mm -hmm. So it was actually nearer three years when they looked at it and measured it. And what they found was there'd been an increase in signage, but not an increase in protection. And at that point, we started moving qu- pretty quickly towards legislation.
0: Amazing. So how do you expect, were you were you already planned ahead for that? Were you expecting the voluntary s- scheme not to work because it hadn't internationally? So you, you already had other things to roll in terms of campaigns and media work for when, after those two years had passed, that voluntary method hadn't worked?
1: Well, there were um, a couple of attempts to bring private member's bills which mm-hmm. focused on places where food and drink were served. Mm-hmm. And so we had to support those while not losing sight of the fact that this was a bigger question. It wasn't just about food and comfort. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and I think we were quite opportunistic, so as other nations started to address this, we mm-hmm. would spotlight that in the media. Um, we, yeah. They say no plan survives the first engagement with the enemy. And that was certainly my experience because we had to adapt and we had to deal with the arguments that were coming against what we were trying to do. And in the case of tobacco, we have a very well-funded and unscrupulous opposition um, who will throw all kinds of things in the mix. And some of them we were able to answer and some of them we weren't. So we just tried to be very honest Mm -hmm. and we tried to look into what was being said and analyse Mm -hmm. it. And answer it. And I think it was that kind of very hot, very live debate in the media that helped inform public opinion about what was happening.
0: Okay, grand. Um, I'm curious, because obviously it's been quite a journey, were there particular sort of turning points on your journey? So was there anything that you were doing that didn't work as well as you were expecting, or, or conversely something that was more effective than you'd anticipated? Were there sort of like, What were your highs and lows as you went along? If you can remember
1: that far mm. back. I mean I found that having political champions who took an interest and were willing to speak on it was vital. Mm-hmm. And briefing the wider body of um, the Scottish Parliament was also vital. Mm-hmm. We were fortunate because we went under the radar of tobacco multinational corporations till quite a late stage in the debate because they thought Westminster decided everything. And they didn't realise ah, okay. that the new Scottish Parliament had been given powers to legislate, mm. so they came in with the big guns at quite a late stage, mm-hmm. when people had already had the debates, thought about it, looked at the evidence, and made up their minds. So, so we had a win there, yes. and it's never been as straightforward since. Mm-hmm. But at that point, they started bringing in um, crisis PR agencies. They started offering MSPs all-paid trips to Zeebrugge to go and talk to them, and you know, trying to influence very hard. Yeah. Um, I think what interested me as well was we argued on evidence and the MSPs were convinced on the evidence okay. but following on from that, of course, the industry adapted and started using evidence as an argument but not the definition of evidence that we would use so they would fund random sort of studies in, in obscure American colleges and claim that was the same as, you know, a, a very thorough peer-reviewed published piece of evidence from a reputable university. Yeah. So there was I learned quite a lot about how you say things and mm-hmm. we stopped talking about um, banning things and started talking about smoke free enclosed public spaces. Yeah. Um, we started talking about the substance rather than the people using it, because you don't have drinkers' policies, you have alcohol policies. Yes. Okay. So we were talking about tobacco policies rather yeah. than um, smoking policies. Yeah. So I think you do have to listen and you do have to question your own stance and yeah. you do have to be prepared to adapt as, as the debate evolves.
0: And did you find within your coalition partners that everyone was quite happy to sort of work that way and do those things as they came up and change the language that you use or the framing that you use?
1: We ended up operating at two levels so okay. we had the overview coalition with the policy makers mm-hmm. and influencers mm-hmm. and then within that they identified their communications experts. And we met with them to talk about the messaging and getting it right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we were bringing in the best expertise and there was a sense that we were working against very well-funded, very experienced corporate PR companies and communications Mm -hmm. agents, Mm -hmm. but uh, we had a bit more of a sense of what we were doing was right and we were committed to it. It, We weren't doing it because we were being paid.
0: No, sure. And then in terms of the MSPs that you worked with and the civil servants and the ministers, did you build up those relationships over time? Were there any that you managed to click straight away who were champions for you? How did all that work? And were you, I assume you also work cross-party as well on this? We
1: always work cross-party yeah. and we're politically neutral. Yeah. But we do take a stance on policies and we will talk to people about the implications we see of their policies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, there was one political party that absolutely opposed it, mm-hmm. but they had a very active member who was working closely with Forrest, which uh, calls itself Freedom Organization for the Right to Enjoy Smoking Tobacco, but is actually on record as being 96% funded by tobacco companies, mm-hmm. and always advocates for the right to smoke and not for the right to quit or to protect your family from tobacco smoke. Mm-hmm. And that MSP went on to become a spokesperson for Forrest yeah. when they left the Scottish yeah, Parliament. Yeah. There was another political party who sat on the fence till a very, very late stage. Mm-hmm. There was an opposition party who absolutely were committed to bringing in protection and worked in a very generous cross-party way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, um, the, the government at the time took time to convince and the health minister was convinced by the evidence Mm -hmm. but the First Minister had to go to Ireland and see it for himself and see that it was politically popular and practically doable before he really came on board
0: So that must have been quite difficult then working with all those different sort of moving parts within Parliament in terms of different people's opinions and then of course you know, members don't always necessarily leave their backbench follow or, or agree with or push the party line as well so... How were you able to sort of manage that? Did you just say, okay, well, we'll, we'll just focus, up, we'll focus most of our resources on the parties who we know are more engaged, or did you still try and put feelers out with the others? Or
1: Well, it was before social media, mm-hmm. but we had emails. Mm-hmm. So we would do rapid, quick, short email briefings and updates to MSPs, and we would do it to all of them. Okay. So we weren't being targeted on a political yeah. party but there was um, someone in opposition who had brought a private members bill and the coalition met with them and discussed their ideas and Mm -hmm. their take on it Mm -hmm. and at a later stage when there was legislation going through we met with the health minister Mm -hmm. and briefed him Mm -hmm. and had Mm -hmm. set questions in advance for him um, and just kind of explored the issues a bit in depth and he later actually name-checked the Scott coalition Great. Um, as, as one of the actors that had made this legislation go through and
0: Brilliant. happen. Brilliant, and you mentioned their islands. I'm just curious. So some of the some of the campaigns in that book, they, I know, take inspiration from other things that have happened globally, like elsewhere. Or equally, they've inspired, as yourselves have done, legislation to sort of follow the that's been taken on in other nations. So I'm just curious, how much do you feel that that island example, as being so close to home as it were geographically and language-wise, you were able to sort of drag that over and say, look, they're doing it, so we can do it.
1: It was crucial. They were the first in Europe, and Mm -hmm. they had a similar kind of culture and Mm -hmm. approach uh, to ours in Scotland. But theirs came through in a different way, so theirs was workplace legislation. And the public debate in Ireland was all about protecting the health of bar workers. Okay. Whereas here it was about um, enclosed public spaces that families would go into and people would work in and people would use in various ways. Mm. So it was a different kind of mm-hmm. argument. Mm-hmm. And Ireland went on its gut and its heart and breached into the legislation very successfully. Scotland gathered shed loads of evidence <laughs> and then actually put in a very well-funded programme to measure the effects. So there were things that were thrown against us, like well, people will stop going to pubs, but they'll smoke more at home and expose their children. Mm -hmm. There was no research about that, so we couldn't answer that. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the things that got funded to be looked at in terms of research. And what they found was, overall, among 11-year-old schoolchildren and a separate study of non-smoking adults, there was an 11% decline in being exposed to tobacco smoke. And actually people, rather than go home and smoke would walk between pubs rather than sit in one pub all evening. So they would smoke on their way around between pubs, so they are yeah. getting a wee bit more exercise when they were smoking.
0: <laughs> Excellent, thank you. Um, you've obviously achieved something really significant for Scotland, which is fantastic. Um, I just wanted, just to finish off, if you've got any advice to others in the sector who are looking to make similar achievements or any top tips that you'd like to offer our listeners?
1: Um, it's a good question. I think from my perspective, um, don't think of anything as being the new tobacco because people look back at what was achieved Mm -hmm. and they think um, this is a template. But it wasn't a template. It was a messy recipe of um, additions and changes and tweaks and random forces coming in and um, engaging. So it was very much uh, dealing with what was in front of us Mm -hmm. rather than you know, a template for a campaign that you can lay on other issues. So I've heard people say that, you know, alcohol was the new tobacco, obesity was the new tobacco, whatever. I would say, um, do your own thing. And I would say it was not by any means certain that this would succeed mm-hmm. when you lived through it. Mm-hmm. So uh, smoke-free enclosed public places came in at 6am on a Sunday because they thought that that's not going to cause a lot of problems with pubs and things. No one's in the pub drinking at 6am on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. But the NHS had set up a crisis centre and were fully prepared for civil rioting because that's what they'd been told would happen by tobacco industry actors. In terms of tips, I think it's important to be clear about what you are trying to do and why you're trying to do it. I think it's probably quite important to figure out who's on the same track as you Mm -hmm. in terms of trying to achieve this and where the opposition is likely to come from and many campaigns won't have the kind of very organised funded opposition that we have that are prepared to you know, throw major companies at you and and litigate if you say the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's still important to realise, I think, who you need to convince or what arguments you need to engage with. And I think it's important to have a plan, but also be flexible and maybe replan when things change. And always, always important to look at the opportunities and, and seize them before they pass
0: amazing thank you very very much it's been great having you in so thank you everyone for listening what i'll do is i'll make sure that the link to ash scotland's website is um up on the page next to this podcast where you can also find the link to our book charity scotland and Hollywood. thanks everyone thank you
1: thank you